0: Hi there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Palos. If you or a loved one is in long-term care in this country, you're going to want to hear this. In the first months of the pandemic, 80% of COVID-19 deaths in this country occurred in older Canadians in long-term care homes. That's according to the National Institute on Aging. That is the highest rate of any developed country. Ottawa tasked two groups with coming up with standards to avoid anything like that happening again. Today, All of those standards are now out. But, and it's a big but, right now, they're just voluntary. Kamal Kara is the minister in charge of this file, the minister for seniors. Hi, minister. Pleasure to welcome you to the program. Good to be here, Vashi. Minister, the standards that were released today, does your government, do you plan to make them mandatory? Do you plan to enforce them? And if so, how? Look, Vashi, let me just start off by saying that, you
1: know, All Canadians and all seniors deserve the best quality of care that's rooted, uh, you know, with dignity and respect, regardless of where they live. And that's why, uh, both Minister DeClo and I, uh, you know, welcome the new resident centered standards that are developed by, um, health standards association organization and Canada's uh, standards association as we approach you know, a true milestone in in improving the lives and quality of um, care of seniors living in long-term care homes. And I know, and I do want to take a moment just to thank both HSO and CSA for the work they've done. And I know these standards are the result of extensive consultations that I know they've done that truly reflect the needs of seniors and views of, uh, you know, healthcare workers, residents, uh, uh, caregivers themselves, and uh, really looking forward to how we can continue to work together with, with provinces and territories to ensure we improve the quality of
0: life uh, for seniors and long-term care homes. Minister, though, what, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that your government plans to make these kinds of stand, uh, standards uh, mandatory through legislation? Will you enforce it in some way, or is it going to be just voluntary that provinces adhere to it?
1: I think the goal is to ensure that facilities across the country are accredited with these uh, standards. You know, our government, as you may know, in budget 2021, we put aside three billion dollars over five years to, port, so to support provinces and territories in that efforts to improve long-term care homes in their own jurisdiction, and that is on top of the one billion dollars that have that was already given to provinces and territories, um, you know, in, in, with the Safe Long-Term Care Fund. Which I'm happy to say, every every province and territory signed onto that agreement. You know, actually, I can. Tell you as, as a nurse and as someone that uh, worked in, in long-term care homes, uh, particularly in the height of this pandemic, uh, in one of the hardest hit long-term care homes in my own community. I know these uh, standards are truly a milestone in the right direction in helping uh, seniors uh, throughout the country, it doesn't, matter where, where, it doesn't matter where they live in the country, to get the best quality of care that they can.
0: I, I want to parse through that answer a little bit because I remember interviewing you when you were working, I think it was in Brampton, in one of the hardest hit homes that the Army ended up being called. Called into, And uh, when you talk about your hope for provinces and the homes in those provinces to be accredited and therefore adhere to these standards, I mean, it is just hope with all due respect, because in Ontario, it's not mandatory. In Quebec, British Columbia and Alberta, it is. Otherwise, it's just a patchwork. Are you telling Canadians tonight that the federal government will not play a role in making sure or enforcing these standards right across the board? Will it just be a patchwork?
1: Look, I think federal government has been playing a role uh, quite quite significantly. As you know, uh, Vashi, from the very beginning, I mean, whether it was uh, during the pandemic when we put boots on the grounds with, uh, you know, Canadian Armed Force's members that I got to work with, uh, but also with the Red Cross, or whether it was sending billions of dollars in PPE in supporting, uh, you know, those seniors living in long-term care homes. And, you know, whether it is a $1 billion safe long-term care fund that we put forward uh, to make sure those pre- uh, infection prevention prevention mechanisms are in place or the $3 billion uh, that we put forward uh, that's on the table to ensure that, you know, standards of care are are met met and that permanent changes are made. I mean, this is a work, uh, I think, uh, that is going to make a difference. I think it's going to take all of us, uh, you know, and we're going to continue to work together with provinces and territories and help them uh, to get to a point where seniors across Canada can receive the standard of care that they deserve and need. And and we're going to continue to uh, move forward, of course, uh, with the uh, with the
0: with the uh, the, the Safe Long Term Care Act that we'll be also putting forward in the near future. So, am I to interpret from what you're saying that while you intend to work with provinces on this issue, you do not intend to make any of these standards mandatory?
1: Vashi, as you know very well, uh, you know, federal government has a role to play, but the, the, the delivery of care, particularly in long term care homes, is with the provincial jurisdictions, and we've been there supporting them. I mean, uh, that's certainly why I think um, the the go- Health Canada provided, you know, $800,000 uh, 800 uh, to uh, both HSO and CSA to be able to do this work, to have this extensive consultations with Canadians, with seniors themselves, uh, with healthcare workers, with caregivers of those, uh, of those facilities to develop these standards. Uh, and we're going to continue to do that work uh, and, and, and moving forward and helping, you know, there's $3 billion on the table uh, that we're going to work with provinces and territories uh, and in helping, developing, uh, you know, uh, supporting them in their own efforts uh, to to make sure seniors get the best care uh, that they deserve.
0: Minister, I spoke today with the doctor who was the chair of the group who released those standards today, and he essentially said on my radio program that uh, they're not worth the paper they're written on unless they're enforced. And and while you're saying today that you're going to work with provinces, even the amount of money that you've put on the table, $3 billion, according to the parliamentary budget officer, is $10 billion short of what provinces would need to implement that. So, so again, I'm gonna to put to you, uh, what are you going to do to ensure they are more, worth more than the paper they're written on? Will you, for example, in negotiations coming up on February 7th with the provinces, uh, hold back money for long-term care or general money through the Canada Health Transfer if provinces don't make that accreditation mandatory?
1: Uh, Vashi, the three billion dollars that we put aside to make sure standards of care are met and that permanent changes are made is, and it builds on uh, another investments that we have made uh, and have been making in collaboration with provinces and territories to improve long term care. You know, whether it is a one billion dollars safe long term care, whether it is a seven hundred and forty million millions of dollars with safe restart agreement to control and prevent infection to reach vulnerable seniors, or the millions of dollars through the long term care. Plus initiative, which supports providers, residents, and long-term care homes in more than 1,500 facilities across uh, across the country. Of course, we're going to continue to, uh, you know, work in collaboration with provinces and territories and help them uh, in, in in ensuring and support them in the work that they'll be doing in implementing these standards. I mean, that is why uh, I think these conversations are important. I think that is why uh, it's extremely important to work in collaboration uh, with stakeholders around the table. But Today is a good news for seniors. I mean, as, as I mentioned, as someone who saw these challenges, um, you know, firsthand to be able to get to this point, I mean, the work is not done, but, and we're going to continue to work forward to make sure seniors across Canada uh, get the best quality of care that they deserve, regardless of where they live.
0: Again, Minister, with great respect, I do have to challenge you because I'm thinking if I am a senior in the home that, that you were working in right now, there is nothing requiring Ontario's government to be accredited and therefore adhere to any kind of standards. And you are telling them tonight... That you will collaborate with provinces, you're short on the money that the Parliamentary Budget Officer says you need to make sure that provinces have what they need to be able to enforce these standards. Like What in what you're saying today could I walk away from as a senior in a home in Brampton thinking, you know what, for sure the level of care I'm going to get is going to increase?
1: Vashi, these standards truly reflect what Canadians and I know um, all seniors and particularly healthcare workers have been asking, I mean, including provinces and territories, have shown interest in these standards and will continue to
0: work with them in collaboration. But, with But them they're not in any effect anywhere, down. Minister. They're not in effect. And you're not saying you're going to make sure they are.
1: Vashi, we've been there supporting uh, provinces and territories in their effort. Uh, You know, whether, as I mentioned, with boots on the ground, supporting Canadians uh, when they needed it the most, whether it was providing provinces and territories, you know, billions of dollars through safe long-term care, uh, you know, agreement or safe restart agreement. We've been there. Uh, We also know provinces have a role to play, uh, and and we're going to continue to make sure we work with them to ensure that they get the best care possible. Okay, Okay,
0: thank you, Minister. I'm out of time. I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Seniors Minister Kamal Kara there. And a little bit later on this program, we're going to dig into whether this is, in fact, good news for seniors with a stacked front bench. Former Premier Brian Gallant, former Cabinet Minister Lisa Raitt, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair, and journalist Rob Benzie will be here. First, though, to another story that's percolating here in Ottawa. There are alarm bells sounding over the federal government's spending on so-called COVID-19 quarantine hotels last year. I want to bring in my colleague, CTV News' Annie Bergeron Oliver. She has the details for us. Hi, Annie. Nice. Uh, so how, how, first of all, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, Conservative MP, is the one who asked the question and got the answer. Mm-hmm. How much money did the Fed spend on these hotels? So we know one
2: specific hotel, which was an airport Weston in Calgary. That's the only hotel right, right now that we have information about. And over three years, they spent $26 million to have about 1,400 people in this quarantine hotel. What's really interesting here, though, is that uh, during 2022, when a lot of the mandates had already been removed or were in the process of being removed, when mandatory quarantine in hotels had largely also been removed, Uh, $6.7 million was spent in 2022. And there were only about 15 people that were housed in this one hotel. So Michelle Rempel-Gardner is saying that this is a flagrant, you know, misuse, I believe. And she said she's legitimately flabbergasted about the expense that was spent on this one hotel and that it raises questions about how much money was spent on other hotels. This hotel specifically was allowed to operate until October 1st. And that's when all mandates were removed at the border. Uh, And so it does raise some questions. We don't have a lot of information from the government in terms of how much these quarantine hotels have cost and how many people have been in them. And one interesting point, we actually just heard back from the hotel chain. My producer, Ian Wood, got a response from them. And they said that this money that was spent on this hotel specifically was because Alberta Health and federal health ministers and their staffers were using conference centers at the Westin, that there were rooms, conference space, transportation meeting space uh, guests were actually only a small part of this operation in terms of the money provided to the Westin and it also included driving people from the border to the airport food and beverage so really it was for hotel rooms and facilities at this hotel not only for people who were quarantining there but also for other programs using the hotel for example the Red Cross.
0: Okay so a little bit more of a breakdown there we just have a few seconds left I know you and our colleagues on Parliament Hill were asking the federal health minister for some sort of explanation about these numbers what did he have to say?
2: So I didn't get a direct response from Duclos when I asked the question. He unfortunately walked away from the microphone, but he was asked a question in question period and essentially said tens of thousands of people were at these quarantine hotels while they existed. And we have a clip from him here.
3: Our primary
1: responsibility has been and remains to protect the safety and the health of Canadians, including the tens of thousands of people who had to access the designated quarantine facilities. Because of these measures and vaccination, in addition, we have saved together, Mr. Mr. Speaker, tens of thousands of lives and tens of billions of dollars in economic cost.
2: So a fairly generic response there from the health minister, but still no details about how much all of these hotels cost across the country and how many people stayed in them.
0: We'll look for those numbers maybe soon. I don't know. Okay, thanks, Annie. Thank you. CTV's Annie Bergeron. Oliver, we have more to come tonight on Power Play. A first, first rather, a quick commercial on the other end of that commercial. We're going to talk to MPs about the economy slowing down and what the government should do about it. They'll be here to debate that in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Power Play. On this Tuesday evening, new statistics show Canada's economy is slowing down. GDP edged up ever so slightly by 0.1% in November. And the effect of that on Canadians grappling with the cost of living is front and centre in the House of Commons. Have a listen.
4: The rest of the world did not raise the rent in Canada. Rental rates are set here. We don't import our apartment buildings from Russia. We build them here in Canada. The member opposite had an opportunity to be in a government uh, and to do something on poverty. They didn't have any targets. They didn't talk about poverty. They didn't talk about homeless shelters. They didn't move those at all. Why don't they fix the problems instead of telling people to shut up about them? They had such a bad record on GDP. There was 14 times in history where there was more growth growth in a single year than they had in their entire
2: government.
0: So we can take a look there at some of the numbers I was just telling you about. The economy grew by 0.1% in November. Of course, we know also the Bank of Canada has hiked interest rates eight consecutive times over the last year. You can see where that interest rate was a year ago and where it is right now at 4.5%. The big question, the big political question is, of course, what should or what can be done about it? And that's where we begin uh, this segment tonight, three MPs are with me this evening. Liberal Associate Finance Parliamentary Secretary Rachel Bendayan is here. Conservative finance critic Jazraj Singh Hallen is here, as is NDP House Leader Peter Julian. Hi, everybody. Very nice to see you. I appreciate you okay. making the time. Miss um, Bendayan, I'm going to start with you. The, the Conservatives are accusing your government of essentially washing your hands completely of the affordability crisis Canadians face. Do you admit some culpability for the level of of spending, some culpability in the, especially where affordability is concerned, the prices that Canadians are facing, in the level of spending your government has had over the past number of years.
5: Listen, if you're referring to spending uh, during the pandemic and, and the COVID related supports, many economists, many experts uh, have indicated that we would have been in a much worse economic position had we not spent that money. I mean, let's remember that we ensured that Canadians kept their jobs and that businesses were able to stay open. Um, and when you're talking about growth and, and the latest numbers, I would just also point you to um, the estimates for 2022 as a whole. Um, we're, we're looking at Statistics Canada's uh, report, which came out just recently, uh, saying that GDP growth was up at around 4%. Um, and that is higher than the United States. It's higher than many of our European allies. And um, it has resulted in uh, in
0: economic growth that has been able to support Canadians. Um, Which is stagnating now, to be fair. I, I take your point on the growth overall over the year, but it is clearly stagnating. 0.1% in November is.
5: But jobs uh, continue to be created by Canadians. If you look at the job numbers uh, for December, uh, they're up. We're talking about uh, 660,000 jobs that were created since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and so, uh, you know, in terms of ensuring that Canadians, uh, you know, are able to make ends meet, having a good paying job is really num- number one sure. on, on my list. It's
0: having a good paying job, but you're still facing, you know, $40 chicken at the grocery store. And I'm not in any way saying that you're entirely culpable for that. But the same report I presented to Andrew Shear yesterday came from Scotiabank. Outside analysis of the, uh, the effect of government spending, 0.45% on the rate of inflation due to government spending, but also a corresponding degree of, uh what, what basically Social Bank said was the amount of government spending out there has led or contributed to 1.25 percent of the interest rate hike that we've seen so far. So of the 4.5, the level of spending that the, uh, the government has done has necessitated 1.25 percent. Of that interest rate hike, so you do bear some responsibility.
5: Well, that same Scotia Bank also came out uh, last month with a report indicating that inflation in Canada was largely the result. Um, of, I'm not
0: saying it's all your fault, but of your, global you, your government won't admit any any culpability there.
5: Well, I, I think it's it's a little bit difficult to say without being specific, Vashi. You know, what spending are you referring to? What would you have cut, Vashi? You know, would you would you have cut the Canada Child Benefit that is going to help families deal with the affordability uh, issues um, that that they're facing? You know, would you cut um, investments? Well, there was in about healthcare? thirty
0: billion dollars of pandemic spending, according to the Auditor General, that. should be further investigated, right? That's not me saying you should cut it. That's the Auditor General saying that your government should have done a better job spending it.
5: Well, I'm, I'm happy to take the time, you know, to look back on the, the last number of years and, and learn, um, from what we experienced. I think everybody acknowledges that the pandemic, um, was, was pretty much a once in a generational, um, challenge for our government to face. But if you look at other countries, if you do the comparison, other countries who have spent less are facing similar levels of inflation and their population is less well off. And so I would challenge, um, I would challenge the media, but I also will challenge my colleague to indicate what exactly they, they wouldn't have spent
0: on. Okay, why don't we pick up there, uh, uh, Mr. Holland. What, what exactly would you not have spent on?
6: Um, well, we just recently saw more liberal insiders getting more money like McKinsey. We would definitely cut out these plush contracts going to liberal insiders. We would have made sure that... So you'd um, cut
0: $100 million and that would have what effect on that's inflation? That's one
6: of the things to start cutting with. We would cut the carbon tax to make life more affordable for Canadians instead of making it more and more expensive. Recently, Canadians were hit with another interest rate hike and because of l- out of control liberal spending, which the Bank of Governors Bank of Canada's governor said that they're only re- increasing these rate hikes because of out of control liberal spending. He, he never
0: said anything like that. He, With he, all due respect he did. Within our
6: committee, he was asked what's causing these rate hikes. He did say that he There's has a role to tackle the deficit. Sure. The federal part deficit of it, yeah. is there. And if we look at also the former Bank of Canada's governor. Um, uh, Mark Carney, who could be the future liberal leader, he also said that the inflation that we're seeing is homegrown. So this is a made-in-Canada liberal I'm going problem. to put the
0: same study to you, right? Because I think that there is a fair challenge to both parties, right? If, if in fact, uh, it is part of what the interest rate hikes uh, are about, is dealing with the fiscal stimulus in the economy, the assessment from the same Scotiabank is that it led to about half a percentage point, almost half a percentage point of the total inflation we're seeing, which right now is at 6.3%, was over 8% in, in, in the summer. So it's, it's not the whole picture,
6: well, if you listen to my liberal friend, they would make it seem like not, everything is fine, that there's nothing wrong with going on, what's going on right now. But the reality is that today we see Canadians suffering more than ever. There's more pain inside of Canada than we've ever seen when 1.5 million Canadians are visiting a food bank in a single month. One in five Canadians are skipping meals. One in five Canadians are saying that they're out of money. And when we look so at so why
0: market, did you? I, I take that. I, I take your point on that, and I and I would not take away from. It. I think that's a really important important point to get across. The, but but then why did your party vote against, for example, the dental program help or the um, the rental subsidy?
6: Well, if you look at what the the overall benefit when it was uh, calculated by the PBO, the the total overall number was about four point seven percent of Canadians. If they if they got that benefit for the rental, that's who it would affect in all of Canada. And five hundred dollars doesn't even So run. you wanted
0: them to spend more?
6: No listen, the problem is inflation. The problem is not these when they're giving handouts now, the real problem is inflation. They should have reined in their spending. They should have made sure that they were they, were, they weren't spending so much. This is a government that said they wouldn't run deficits more than $10 billion during the 2015 election. And before the pandemic hit, they were already at $100 billion in deficit spending. And on top of that, during okay. the pandemic, I they spent that... a, half a, billion, a half a trillion dollars, 40% of which had nothing to do with COVID.
0: My, my, well, what I've heard from the, what I read from the parliamentary budget officer was that 30% was not... Uh, temporary in nature, as had been indicated. We'll get into that in a second. I know your colleague wants to jump in, Mr. Julian. I want to I want to bring you into the conversation as well. Uh, you have pushed the government in certain respects through the uh, confidence and supply agreement to do things like the rental subsidy, to do things like the um, the dental program. Both D-doubling of which doubling the
7: GST credit. Don't, yeah, don't but okay, that. fine. But yeah. but
0: but all of which I interviewed the Parliamentary Budget Officer at the time will have another impact on inflation. Right, It do- does have an impact. I know they're aimed at helping certain pe- certain people, particularly on the oing- low income side of things but it is more spending. Is that a mistake? Like, do you need to kind of Absolutely your back there? Absolutely Ma- not.
7: Making those investments for Canadians makes a big difference in their quality of life. Canadians are struggling. And what Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have managed to, to force the government to do, dental care, uh, the rental supplement, ensuring the, double, the doubling the GST credit. And then this year, of course, expanding the dental program and looking at pharmacare. These are all issues in housing. Are all issues where Canadians are are facing real economic problems, and what if we are going through a, a downturn? What. What Conservatives and Liberals uh, haven't haven't said is that we need to to put in place employment insurance reform so that the 60% of Canadians, when they lose their jobs, who don't have access to anything to put food on the table, actually, if they lose their job, can put food on the table. One thing to say
0: about that is that no economist at this juncture, not to say that they're perfect and their forecasts are, but nobody is saying that many people are going to lose their jobs, right? We do have almost full employment in this country right now. The labour shortage uh, shortage is the issue.
7: But if we're losing jobs, uh, if we are right now, 60% of Canadians who lose their jobs don't have access to employment insurance. They have nothing to fall back on. Those were couldn't conservative government. Couldn't you have. I mean, you're keeping the government in power, couldn't you
0: have forced them to do
7: it? Uh, we're forcing them to do a lot of things. And, but why not uh, that then? Uh, well, I mean, 20, 27 things that we've uh, forced, are forcing the government to do. And, uh, and Meet Singh has been very clear that the government has to perform and keep those commitments. Uh, So we've seen certainly more activity to support regular Canadians than we've seen uh, since liberals came to power. Are,
0: Are you concerned, though? Look, you've had that activity. It's been targeted. Are you concerned about doing more, for example, like Pharmacare in the agreement with the NDP that will further add stimulus to the economy at a time when the Bank of Canada is hoping for fiscal stimulus to be sort of constricted?
5: If you're asking me if I think we should be fiscally responsible, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, we have. Current... Does that mean no to pharmacare, for example? I, I would just like to point out that you know you, you, you've been talking about government spending since uh, the beginning of the program, but we actually have the lowest debt among all G7 countries and the lowest deficit of all G7 countries, and we have seen um, many criticize um, the fall the economic statement and the previous do- budget for being extremely fiscally responsible and restrained. Um, we have an obligation in, to ensure that we don't add fuel to the fire of inflation when we take that very seriously. Are there things that we need to do in order to support Canadians? Absolutely, but we have made uh, sure that those are targeted and that those uh, specific measures, um, whether it be the dental uh, support for children um, or the enhanced Canada workers benefit or the rental benefit that you referred to, which is for low-income Canadians, that they're very yes. targeted,
0: Is there more on the table, though, is my question, or is there hesitation to put more on the table as Canadians continue to struggle with affordability because there's already fiscal stimulus out there? Well, one of the things that I'm
5: really focused on is putting things on the table that will bring back, um, you know, uh, dividends to this country that will ensure the economic growth for the future. And so, you know, you have seen us talk about an industrial policy, about a a green transition. And what does that mean? That means that some investments will need to be made in in AI, in quantum, um, in bringing, um, you know, uh, a a rare earth mineral strategy to Canada and ensuring that we create the growth and the jobs for the economy of tomorrow. And I think it would be short-sighted not to make investments. What I hear
0: from that, Mr. Helen, I just have a quick time for a quick final comment from each of you is that the government will be spending money to respond to the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, in the United States. Is that something conservative support?
6: Well, just to answer my liberal friend's question, uh, in their own liberals' twenty twenty two budget, they're, by their own projections, they're going to have the slowest GDP to debt debt ratio growth in um, in all of the OECD countries.
0: The, by their or, own do you budget. mean the lowest or the? the hu- lo-
6: they're going to they're going to have the worst growth out of all the countries. GDP in the growth, you mean? Yes.
0: Well, right now by, we don't.
6: By their own budget. But that's what they're predicting. It's GDP to I debt I don't think ratio. that's accurate, actually. They're going to have the worst. It's in their own budget. And on top of that, like, if you look at what Canadians are going through right now, they're, they're the ones suffering by all these, all these uh, packages or all these handouts that they've been given. This is what contributes to a lot of the pain that's, that we're seeing all across the country. We need to invest in things that uh, what, what money buys more infrastructure. We need to make sure that we're... we're So you
0: do support responding to the IRA?
6: We support more support for our energy industry, getting the gatekeepers out of the way so we can produce more of what Canada can make, which is food and energy.
0: Mr. Julian, last word to you. Well, sir. fiscally
6: responsible,
7: and the Conservatives want to give billions of dollars to oil and gas CEOs. And we've seen BBO is mean, estimated... Are you talking about the 30, carbon
0: capture cra- tax I, I'm, I'm,
7: talk, I'm talking about all of the uh, subsidies that go to the oil and gas industry. Well, the, that's the, the, the and, and we've credit. been pushing the Liberals to, to eliminate them. Uh, there is a wide variety of subsidies, as you know, but $30 billion a year as well going to overseas tax havens. Uh, The ultra-rich have to pay what they owe Canadians. And and that is one, the the most effective way of being fiscally responsible. My last point is on greedflation. A big part of inflation, as you know, has been uh, grocery chains inflating their prices. And it's only the NDP and Jagmeet Singh that have been speaking out against that and pushing the government to Put measures into place well, we'll so s- companies can't gouge Okay, comedians. that's a whole
0: other discussion, and we'll have to si- have it in anticipation of the budget. Thank you very much, all three of you, for making the time tonight. Rachel Bendayan, Jazraj Singh, Holland, uh, and Peter Julian. We're going to have, uh, as I said, a stacked front bench ready to dig into what you just heard as well as the discussion around long term care. They're up next. Stay right there. More to come tonight on PowerPoint.
4: of the world did not raise the rent in Canada. Rental rates are set here. We don't import our apartment buildings from Russia. We build them here in Canada. The member opposite had an opportunity to be in a government uh, and to do something on poverty. They didn't have any targets. They didn't talk about poverty. They didn't talk about homeless shelters. They didn't move those at all. Why don't they fix the problems instead of telling people to shut up about them? They had such a bad record on GDP. There was 14 times in history where there was more growth in a single year than they had in their entire government.
0: Just some of the back and forth today in the House of Commons as the economy remains front and centre here in Ottawa. Politicians are back, by the way. They started off this sitting for 2023 yesterday. Is anyone landing the line, landing their argument? Let's bring in the front bench to talk about that. Former New Brunswick Premier Brian Gallant is here. He's now the CEO of Space Canada. Former Deputy Conservative Leader Lisa Raid is here tonight too. She's now the Vice Chair and Managing Director of Global Investment Banking at CIBC. CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader Tom Mulcair is with us, as is the Toronto Star's Queen's Park Bureau Chief Robert Benzie. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you tonight. Hi, uh, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you've been listening, I'm sure, for the past two days at all the back and forth. A little bit of more meat on the bone on that broken, not broken narrative we've heard for the, for the past month. Who do you think, or, or which party do you think, is, is resonating most based on what you're hearing? <sighs>
8: The very hot approach of Pierre Poilievre every time he takes a microphone and talks about this, might start to be a bit wearing on the average Canadian's patients, but I do think he's scoring quite a bit. The type of panel that we just had, I don't think that anybody learns a heck of a lot from that. I think that if Trudeau sticks to his knitting, which is basic social programs that he's promised to enhance, some of it under his deal with the NDP, such as completing the dental plan and coming in with Pharmacare, Those are good things that help Canadian families, lower their costs for many of them, and they're very hard for any other future government to take away. The big one, of course, is the health health deal, the health accord that's in the offing with the provinces. Big meeting coming up on February 7th. The provinces have already said they want the federal contribution to go to 35%. Now, that is probably going to give Christia Freeland fits as she tries to put together her budget. But I think that those are the key things that the government can and will do. And I think that the average Canadian will see in that an answer to a lot of their questions regarding the ability to get proper services in health care and to lower their costs, for example, for prescription medicine. I think that those will be winners for the, the Trudeau Liberals if they do pull it off.
0: Uh, Let's parse through some of the arguments a little bit that are being made, Um, if we can. Lisa, and I'll start with the Conservatives, who who are are basically trying to say that a lot, if not most, of the issues we're facing around affordability are because of things that the Liberals did. Do do you think that argument is landing?
9: Yeah, I do. Um, And I think everybody wants to blame somebody. And uh, the Conservatives are going to blame the Liberals, which makes a lot of sense. And the Liberals have to deflect it really clearly because, and I see Mark is trying to do that in the House of Commons. But let me anecdotally just tell you, you know, a large Canadian grocery store has announced that their prices will be going up in February. People are talking about this. They're talking about stockpiling. They're talking about grabbing stuff while they can. There's lots of people in social media talking about how to clip coupons, what to do, where to find it, how to make sure you're getting the right deals. We are seeing something we haven't seen in a very long time. And, yeah, I think the Conservatives are bang on when they try to lay blame for what we're feeling right now at the foot of the current sitting government that has been there since 2015. Smart move.
0: Brian, what's the, from a strategic point of view, how do the Liberals counter that? I listen to the way they are, which is Hey, look, it's not all our fault. And, and look, the, the facts do bear that out. But there is, as I, I you know, tried to accomplish in that panel, there is some culpability. There's a bit of truth in what everybody's saying. Strategically, though, if you're the liberals and you know that that's the very sort of specific argument that conservatives are making. How do you counter that?
3: I think the first step is to admit that it's a problem. And I agree with my esteemed colleagues. I think Lisa's right to say that it is one that is working and, and to uh, Mr. Mulcair's point. I believe uh, Tom's right as well. This is something that Pudilieva uh, is scoring points on. So the the first thing is admitting that this is a bit of a challenge for the Liberals, and I think it is. And at the end of the day, the reason it is is because the affordability challenge is so stark, it's so real, and it's not going away. And it's one of those things that even if it got better in the next few months, maybe even just before the election. You still feel it as, as a household and communities. They're still going to be feeling it, unfortunately. So it's not something that's going to sort of kind of not be on people's minds for, for a while. This is something that really people are struggling with in a very real way right now. And even if it gets a little bit better, they're still going to be struggling because of the difficult times they just went through. So this is something that they have to be alive to. I, I think if I'm thinking what the liberals are thinking uh, when they're sort of uh, conversing on this, they're telling themselves, "Well, our whole our whole government uh, has all been nothing about, uh, n- nothing more than than we've worked on than this. Like this is what we've been doing since day one, right? Like they, they would have a bit of a frustration, I think, because they would have the impression that they've tried really hard to help those that have been struggling from since 2015. And obviously, there have been some global issues. There's been some things happening uh, I- around the world over the last few years, which we all know, and uh, I-, I won't repeat because it's sort of depressing, but." But I'm sure there's a little bit of frustration. But my advice, my first piece of advice is true. They have to admit it is a challenge. So they have to get over the fact that they may feel that they've been trying to address this for years now, but it's still very real. So I would be very focused on the message. I would take Pia Poliev's uh, sort of attacks on this very seriously. The idea that it's not their fault and keep saying that. Sure, you can have some of the people go on panels uh, like like you just had, uh, Vashi, and say that. But the prime minister, the minister's cabinet, the, the government as a whole is going to have to start to have solutions for Canadians and show some momentum over the next few months and years.
0: Uh, Rob, uh, I think one of the points Brian made there, that look, even if inflation curbs down, it's not going away. Like Lisa's right, we're all talking about the price of things right now—we're talking about that decision to lift the price. Like it's—it is a part of the, the the daily conversation. And even if things start to go down, it's not like prices are going down right now. They're just going up a little bit slower than they used to be, right? So how? Yeah. How much do you expect this stays in focus for politicians?
4: I think, Vashi, it stays in focus. Uh, They have to be laser-focused on it. One of the barometers, and it's not a a very good one, I admit, but it's one that I, in my own life, I walk along College Street here in Toronto to work at Queen's Park, uh, and I walk by the Fort York uh, Food Bank. And this morning when I walked by, the, the Fort York Food Bank lineup was half a city block long. And I looked at who was in that lineup, and these are people who were heading to work uh, after their, they were the way they were dressed, they were not you know street people, homeless people, or whatever. These were folks working poor folks in this the richest city in the, in the country uh, who are having to go to a food bank to make ends meet and that 's a, a small kind of anecdotal piece of evidence of that, that people are struggling now This is different though than past recessions I think on, on one key point: unemployment is not high, as you said before uh, it 's at record lows. Uh, Here in Ontario, there's around 350,000 unfilled jobs. So the the problem is wages aren't rising at at, at the rate of inflation. So a lot of people are having to have side hustles, two jobs, things like that. So it's tough out there and it's tough to be in government when times are tough. And and this is when it's great to be in opposition. Tom knows he was an effective leader of the opposition. This is when you can really score some points in the House uh, against the government that really doesn't have all of the answers. Because really not a ton that any sitting government can do.
0: Yeah, it's not easy. Okay. Uh, I liked how Tom was kind of smiling when he said that. I'm going to switch gears to when we're talking about tough times, actually, another really significant issue, uh, and that is the issue of long-term care. There was the release today of new standards. There's two kind of groups that were studying what standards should there be, basically, given what happened during COVID, where 80% of the deaths in the first few months of the pandemic occurred in long-term care homes. It was the highest rate, in the entire developed world of that happening, a terrible badge uh, for for Canadians and for Canada to carry. Uh, The the results came out today, the standards are out today, and uh, I interviewed the Minister for Seniors, who was on the program earlier, about what the Fed's plan to do to make sure they're worth more, as the the person who wrote them uh, said, more than the paper they're written on. I want to show you a little bit of the back and forth that happened in the House of Commons, I believe, over this, and then we'll get all of you to weigh in.
8: Two years ago, the Canadian Armed Forces had to be called into long-term care homes. And what they saw in those homes were a horrific conditions. Seniors left for hours in soiled diapers and linens. Seniors crying out for food and water, left dehydrated and hungry. After seeing the report, the Prime Minister said he was sad and frustrated. But two years later, there's been no action.
0: Okay, that's just one part of the back and forth, I should say. That's just Jagmeet saying... Uh pointing that out. Uh, Lisa, look, in essence the, the government's saying this is good news, that there are standards, but to me, what I garnered from my interview is like it's still gonna be very much up to provinces, uh, the degree to which they become basically mandatory. What, what are your thoughts on that?
9: Well, I have a husband in long-term care and I don't think people understand the population of long-term care. I think people need to understand that 70% of the people in there have dementia, that the survival rates, the five-year survival rate for dementia patients after diagnosis is very poor, especially when they're in long-term care. There's no palliative care available for dementia patients. And these are just the realities that the staff and the caregivers have to deal with. And that one last thing, When you make the decision to have your loved one go to long-term care in a dementia case, which is 70% of the cases, you do it because you're physically, emotionally, and financially exhausted. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because all of this debate about asking what value we're getting out of the services, whether or not we're going to have regulations, guys, we got a lot of problems in long-term care. And- running after a KPI of whether or not they get 4.1 versus five hours of one-on-one care service is not the piece that we should be going after. What we need to go after is what is talked about, which is person-centered care, recognizing that these are palliative care situations. We have to look at it that way. Death does occur much more easier for people in these fragile states. And it's a reality and it's, if I could put it this way, Dear God, don't let it become a political football. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted from this.
0: I can only imagine. Um, uh, it, It is, Tom, though, somewhat of a political back and forth right now, right? Because it just doesn't seem clear. Okay, we've had a discussion over what needs to change. But like, how does that change occur? What are your thoughts on that?
8: Well, I just want to start by talking to my friend Lisa and saying thank you for sharing that. I think that that's uh, something that Canadians need to know as we discuss this and uh, our hearts are with you and your family. I think that it's quite clear that this is not something that is within federal jurisdiction, but the good news is on February 7th, there's a meeting coming up. And in the past, the federal government and the provinces have been able to discuss norms and what's expected and what's going to be covered and not covered. And I think that there could be the opening of a discussion. We have to be careful. It is a question of competence in both senses of the word. Competence, jurisdiction. Competence, ability, experience, expertise. The federal government has very little. But when you look at the cases that Mr. Singh was referencing in the House today, think of Bob Cajun in Ontario. Think of the horror of the Heron residence in Dorval, Quebec, an absolute abject horror that shouldn't have happened in, in a first world country, period. And so all Canadians are so concerned about this, they would like to make sure that as these big discussions take place and we will add tens of billions of dollars of federal money, is it appropriate to say that we would like to make sure that there's a certain minimum standard that we adhere to across the country without trying to pretend that we can send in federal bureaucrats to take care of it? But are there certain minimum norms we can agree to? I think the answer is yes. Mm Yes.
0: Do you think the answer is yes, Brian? I mean, you've been around the table in that context. Uh, I would point out that I read in the Globe and Mail today that the spokesperson for the federal health minister said that that wasn't at this point going to be part of the discussion on February 7th. I I have a hard time believing that it wouldn't be.
3: The the answer, uh, very simply put, is yes. Of course, it's possible to have these minimum standards decided at those types of meetings, discussed obviously beforehand, would be the best way to get a decision at the Premier's table. But I have to say what those minimum standards would look like uh, would would be the question, if it's even discussed, as you pointed out, Vashi. And also, I, I would add, I mean, the, the scene that, that sort of has transpired in 2021, when the promise was made by Justin Trudeau, uh, he certainly was in the middle of the pandemic, probably a bit of, of a sentiment that Canadians were very, as you mentioned at the top, uh, very disappointed with what happened to say the least devastated, probably a better word uh, for what happened at the beginning of the pandemic in long-term care homes and sensing that the liberals uh, would have made a promise that we'll legislate and, and raise standards. And and that might've been a bit of an overreach of a promise. It is still possible. And I think Tom went through how it is possible to work with the premiers to get some negotiating going, but but to be able to say that you're 100% going to be able to legislate, it might be a bit far So the hope is, I think, for Canadians and for the Liberals in this case, that we're going to have the Premier step up and say, yeah, we we had a real problem. We don't want to see that happen again. The only thing that I want to say to be a little bit realistic in those meetings, though, if, if all the Premiers got together and say that, they're essentially going into a meeting saying they're going to pay millions and millions, in some cases, depending on the size of the province, hundreds of millions of dollars more every single year. So it is a big undertaking, financially speaking, one that should happen. Don't get me wrong, but nevertheless, having 13 people of the with the premiers of the provinces and territories all get together, making that type of financial commitment by February 7th, I think you said, um, it, it feels a little unrealistic at this stage.
0: Rob, I just have under a minute, but last word to you.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Vashi, to to what uh, Thomas and 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 uh, um, Brian were saying. This, there are going to be strings attached to this new federal funding that we'll be, we'll be discussing a week from tonight after that meeting with the first ministers mm-hmm. uh, in Ottawa. And one of those strings could be the minimum standards that are clearly shouldn't be opt-in. They should they have to be mandatory. If you're going if we this is a first world country and I think we have to remember how do you how are we treating our most vulnerable people, people with dementia, our elderly. This is. Not a, 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 this is not a good look for this country. What happened during the pandemic in Quebec and in Ontario especially in long-term care was disgraceful.
0: Okay, I'll leave it there. We'll see you all a week from tonight after that meeting. Really appreciate the discussion. Tom Mulcair, Lisa Raitt, Brian Galland and Rob Benzi. Today's takeaway is on exactly that subject. I asked Seniors Minister Kamal Kara if the feds would hold back money based on the issue of long-term care. Here's her answer.
1: Of course we're going to continue to uh you know work in collaboration with provinces and territories and help them uh in, in, in ensuring and support them in the work that they'll be doing in implementing these standards
0: so no indication from Minister Kara that the federal government plans on withholding money or tying it explicitly to the implementation of those long-term care uh, standards. I also asked repeatedly if the government plans to legislate or make them mandatory and did not get a specific answer in return. We'll keep following this, though, certainly. And that meeting, again, happens one week from tonight. Right now, though, I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. That does it tonight for us here at Power Play. Have a wonderful evening.